What a joy. What a joy it is to always be here, but particularly to bring to you the word of the Lord and to see it as just that. My prayer always when preaching is that the Lord would speak through a weak and frail, imperfect servant. And that's the expectation. This is, the, this is what he does. There's a common saying, and um, it goes something like this. The Lord often uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. And are we not just that ourselves? He is... He's doing things in our midst. He's using us in ways that are unexpected. And it mingles with the ordinary. And this is the way of the Lord. And so to gather under the word is nothing short of miraculous. But it also is simply normal. And it should be for us. And so I consider it to be just that that we get the privilege of having the living Word of God revealed to us today. And we, with our ears, hear it, and with our minds, consider it, and put it, let, it put, let it go to work within us, and then with our hearts, we walk in the gladness thereof. And so, I'm particularly excited for this sermon today. Um, we're going to be in Exodus 6, starting in verse 14. And so as you know, we took a break last week for Easter, but in Exodus, um, a quick recap, we've seen the Israelites, ha- we've picked up right from the, I- the end of Genesis. The start of Exodus really is picking right off, uh, right up from where we left off in Genesis. And we see Israel in the bondage of Egypt. They've been there for 400 years. The Egyptians have, um, have brutalized them, have kept them as their servants, and we see the, the rise of Moses as their chosen Messiah, so to speak, as the one who is anointed to lead them to their deliverance. And in all this, we've seen the struggles of Moses in the call of God, him being fearful and timid, and yet still being obedient all the while. And we see his timidity play out in some of his excuses before the Lord. And in just previous weeks, Moses and Aaron have gone to Pharaoh to request that he might let the people go so that they might worship. And Pharaoh uh, is indignant at the request. And he then commands that their work be made more severe, that their labor be more strict, that the supplies they once were provided with by the Egyptians, they now had to gather on their own and yet still produce the same amount of product, the same amount of bricks. And so this is where we're at. And Moses has gone back to the Lord. And two weeks ago, Ben preached in the first half of chapter 6 regarding the promises that God gives to Moses, he, he encourages him again to continue with the task at hand. And he says, I am going to do all these things. And we're going to recap some of that during the, the sermon. And so I won't read it now. 
But the title of this sermon is called The Promise of Posterity. If you write notes, The Promise of Posterity. You see, this entire section of scripture is really a a genealogy. And if you're reading in Exodus, it almost seems obscure and out of place. You might even ask the question, why do we need to know this? And we're going we're gonna to find out why this particular genealogy and why genealogies in general are incredibly important for the people of God. But I want to also define for you what is posterity. It's a common word in the Bible. It's not all too common, but you'll see it throughout the scriptures. And it simply means the generations to come, okay? It means all the generations that will come after you, your lineage down the line. And posterity means something in God's covenantal plans. And so you'll hear me throughout the sermon say generations, posterity, or even progeny. And I'm using those words interchangeably. But we're really going to see the promise of posterity through the genealogy given here. And the importance thereof. And then we need to also answer the question, why are genealogies important? We're going to look at this one from Exodus 6. Why do they matter? Why do they matter? Well, the scriptures are filled with genealogies. If you have read any of the law, uh, particularly in the book of Numbers, and then also going on into the history writings through uh, Kings and Chronicles, you have come across numerous genealogies, numerous ones. And even in the New Testament, we find genealogies. Both Matthew and Luke give genealogies concerning Jesus. So there's something going on with them. They're not, they're not just historical record-keeping, though they are that, but they serve a purpose beyond that. And that purpose, along with being records, historical records, they are to be guideposts for the people of God that point to God's covenant promises. And so when we come across genealogies in the Bible, it's common for us to skim it. There's a lot of names we probably don't know how to pronounce, and it's easy to become lost within the genealogy. But if you If you concede to that notion, you're missing out on the purpose of genealogies for the people of God. And that is they're always pointing to something, and in particular to someone. And so we're going to see that today. We're going to see that today. So um, let us read the text, and we will dive in. If you are able, please stand with me as I read. Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 14. The word of the Lord speaks thus. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. 
These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Zithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Amminadab, and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas, these are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now as your servants and as the people of your pasture pleading for wisdom from above. Lord, would you show us your ways, Lord, that we might walk in your will and observe all your statutes and commandments. May we see the precedence and the assumptions of the scriptures that they might form us and shape us. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom, encouragement, and strength to walk in your ways all the days of our lives, and that today you would speak to us. We are your people who belong to you in Christ, your Son. And I pray that your word would have precedent among us, and that you would have preeminence in our hearts and in our minds, and that you would be magnified in us and through us today. Lord, we ask this and plea and pray for it now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> so, as, so our first point, our first point, there's going to be three things I want to show us that genealogies do. And so, if you're, again, if you're a note taker, you can go ahead and write these down. Hopefully, I remember to reiterate them. Genealogies remind us of God's promises. Okay, they point to the past. They remind us of God's promises. They declare to us God's purposes. Okay? They show us his purposes in the present. And genealogies reveal to us God's power. They also reveal to us what will be seen in the future. Okay? So genealogies have a past, present, and future purpose. And those, again, those points of, those three points today are, they remind us of God's promises, declare to us God's purposes, and reveal to us God's power. 
The promise of posterity. Promises, purposes, power. You're welcome. All right. So, as we said, as we stated earlier, the scriptures are filled with genealogies. They're filled with them. You can't avoid them. If you read the Bible, you will read a genealogy. And so how do we approach it? Well, as I've mentioned already, they serve a purpose. And historical record is a part of that purpose. And it's a huge one. This is history we're reading, okay? Many in the world today would say this entire book is myth and there's no reason to believe it. And yet any person who has any cursory reading of it would understand that Israel was writing this as simply their history. They did not cherry pick anything. You see the sins of Israel. You see the blessings of Israel. You see the promises of God. You see their victories. You see their failures. Anyone who had uh, some half-cocked idea to make their own religion, I don't think would include the craziness that you will find in the Old Testament in particular about what the people of God did. Because this is history. It happened. All right? This stuff is, some of this stuff in here is shameful. Not to the Lord, but unto the people. And so it's evident that it's real. And so genealogies are a part of that record keeping. They are historical record. And yet, it doesn't, the, the purpose doesn't end with just that. It's a guidepost. It, it's a literary device that is meant to remind the reader, the audience, which is us, that something is going on here. This is for a purpose, and we have to figure out what it is. It's not going to be hard to figure out, but it still it should pique our interest as we read. And so now we have to ask the question, if genealogies in general do this, what, what's going on with this genealogy? Why is it here in Exodus chapter 6? And it's a partial one at that. It's seemingly obscure. I want you to keep that question in mind. I'm not answering it yet. I want you to keep that question in mind. Let us look back. We're going to look back starting in Genesis chapter 12. And we're going to build the case for this particular genealogy. In Genesis 12, we see the first semblance of the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12, starting in verse 1, says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, this is the beginning. This is the first instance of the Abrahamic covenant being formed. When the Lord called out Abraham, Abram at the time and in mercy, establishes a covenant with him, okay? And already we see the promise of a nation. Already. It's right there. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great 
so that you will be a blessing. Already we have the promise of posterity. Abram cannot be his own nation. A nation starts with a child. And that child turns into other children. And those children turn into other children. So it's already in the promise itself that there will be posterity to come. And they will be marked by God. All right? Let's continue. We're going to jump into Genesis 14, starting in verse 17, and read partially into chapter 15. This one's a little longer, so please uh, turn with me there and, um, and follow with me. Starting in seven, verse 17 of Genesis 14. And I, I, you try to pay attention to the details of Mo, uh, Abram's interaction with um, the king of Sodom because it's, it's very important. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Okay, he just defeated a huge king. And this guy basically said, since you helped us out, you can keep the loot. You can keep the, the war's booty, all right? You can take it. It's yours. I'll give it to you. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. So Abram says, I don't need anything from you. I'll take what I brought in with me. That's all. That's all I want. That's important. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given, and Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, but your own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, bel and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid 
each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. With great possessions. Okay. God's primary purpose in his covenant with Abraham is posterity. But take note, Abram refused the possessions of King Sodom because he knew, even though he had a, a, a very poor understanding, he knew that he could trust the Lord for what the Lord would provide. There had already been given to him covenant promises two chapters earlier. And he says, I don't need your stuff. I'll take what I brought in with me. I trust the Lord. And this is what the Lord says. I will give you a nation. I will give you a nation. It says it right here that he believed the Lord. He believed that promise. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And in believing the promise of posterity, of generations to come, he is then further blessed when God says, it will be through your posterity that you will gain many riches. Because when they come out from under the land of their affliction, they will come out with possessions. Do you see that? That the promise is primarily for posterity, but with the posterity comes the blessing of possessions. This is how God has designed it. This is the, the substance of the Abrahamic covenant so far. And now we come... We come back to our, well, almost. We're almost there. I want you to continue to ask the question, why this genealogy? Why? Hopefully, you're already seeing in the Abrahamic covenant, it's right there, that it was predicted and foretold to Abraham that his posterity would suffer in Egypt for 400 years, but they would come out in victory. Okay, so we know this, and we've, we've gone over this already in, the, in this uh, sermon series. And this is reminded, this is given to Abraham's descendants over and over again. This is given to the patriarchs. In Genesis 46, this is our last place in Genesis. Genesis 46, starting in verse 1. This is, ama this is amazing. I, and I think the dots will begin to connect for you if they haven't already. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. So this is Jacob, Abraham's grandson. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. 
I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Okay, we, he- we see here that Jacob offers sacrifice. He's already worshiping the God of his fathers. And in the night, the Lord speaks to him and declares himself to be the God of his father Isaac, And he continues to encourage him to go down to Egypt. Remember, there's famine in the land. Joseph has already been there, all right, because his brothers betrayed him. And Joseph is now inviting his family into Egypt. The Lord says, do it. Go down there. Go down there. And guess what? As a part of their record keeping and as a guidepost to God's promises and as a testimony to Israel's obedience, they write, a genealogy of those who went down into Egypt. They write a genealogy. They kept records of who went down by faith. This genealogy is almost verbatim in Exodus 6, up until Moses and Aaron's family. So now we should be seeing the fact that this partial genealogy isn't obscure at all. But it's pointing back to the promises already given. The promise that a nation would come from the seed of Abraham. He would have posterity. And that this nation would be formed and built in a foreign land. And this nation would be brought out of this foreign land with many possessions. And so here in the middle of Exodus 6. What seems like an unnecessary genealogy is meant to draw us back in time to the promises of God given to the forefathers. The people I send down into Egypt, I'm going to take out. I know who you are. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Your families, your children, your children's children, they're going to go down and they're going to come out. And so we see... We are reminded of God's promises. We, point, we, we, are, we are shown back in history. We're reminded of the goodness of God and his promises. And we're now looking at his ability to keep those promises. And so we now, as the audience of Scripture, are meant to marvel at the fact that God has said that all that God has said is coming true. And so we get the privilege of looking back with Israel 
and saying, the Lord, he has been faithful. But now that we've been reminded of the past and we've had our vision tuned to see God's faithfulness, we can now understand what's going on in the present for Moses, for Aaron, and for all of Israel. And so now we're in our second point. Genealogies declare to us God's purposes. And so now we're going to backtrack just a little bit in Exodus, okay? We recapped already that there's already been issues. Moses has gone to Pharaoh and requested that the people take a respite to go worship the Lord. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He becomes indignant. And he, he retaliates by increasing their labor. And that's where we pick up here. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Notice the Lord says, Now you shall see what I will do. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord." Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips." But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So the, we, we see, it's quite clear, the Lord's word to Moses has consistently stated over and over and over again that it would be the Lord, it would be the Lord and no one else who delivers them out of the hand of Egypt. He's reminding them over and over again that all of their salvation would be all from the Lord. There would be absolutely no other explanation to it than that the Lord delivered his people with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So what does this genealogy have to do with that? The key is in verse 26. After giving the genealogy leading up to Moses and Aaron and then... We'll see in our next section, Aaron's descendants and Korah's. Verse 26 says, These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts, 
It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. This isn't a big mystery. Moses and Aaron are simply the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's the point. Again, it's not a mystery. God gave his covenant promises and is now fulfilling them through two very normal unqualified and even fearful men and the genealogy screams this that these aren't outsiders coming in to rescue poor old Israel these aren't some miraculous strong mighty men from another nation these are our kinsmen they're from among us and God is fulfilling his purposes and the genealogy proves this they're of us they're men like we are. They belong to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, it's God doing the saving. It's God doing the saving. And so, because we see this verbatim genealogy from Genesis 46 to Exodus 6, it now serves as an announcement. The same family that God has given you to go into Egypt is the same family that is coming out of Egypt. And your leaders are from among you. Therefore, God, your maker, who has been your sustainer, is also your savior. It's all from him. It's all from him. There's no surprise. There's no foreign help. This is no these men are not angels. These men are not deities in and of themselves. They are simply your brothers. And they belong to Israel. And God is using them. God is using them. It's in using Moses and Aaron, who are sons of Amram, son of Koath, son of Levi, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, that we get to see how God sovereignly intertwines the miraculous with the mundane. We, we have to understand this. God intertwines, he intermingles the miraculous with the mundane. This is how he does things. They are just men. And yet, God reveals his power, his might, and his glory through men such as this. It's almost... It's almost as if God had a glorious plan already in mind when he charged Adam and Eve and later Noah to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. See, God's plan from the start has been to establish generations upon generations in order to reveal his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. From the beginning... It has been designed that through the filling of the earth, God's glory would also be seen throughout all the earth. It's been the modus operandi from the start. It's been his way from the start. And so now, now that we've seen the past and we have understanding of the present, let us look for the hope of the future because genealogies reveal to us God's power, the power to come. 
this genealogy could have just ended with Moses and Aaron because they were the ones mediating between Israel and Pharaoh and God and Israel. They were the ones leading the people. It could have just ended with them, but it, it didn't. It didn't. In continuing down the line, we are to understand that Israel has a future and that this future will endure through the Exodus. Moreover, this genealogy specifically continues with Aaron's lineage and Korah's lineage. If you know anything about the priesthood of Israel and the servants of the tabernacle, then you know that those men came from these men. There's malfeasance, there's sin, there's corruption, but that's not really the point right now. The lineage that's being shown in this very partial genealogy points to only one thing, and that's the priesthood. The text doesn't really explain why, but I believe that it is a picture of how Israel will worship the Lord their God after their redemption from Egypt. If you remember, the first thing Moses asks Pharaoh is to let the people go that they might worship. That they might worship. So I believe that this genealogy is a little down payment, if you will, of the Lord not only redeeming his people from the bondage of Egypt, but also establishing in their midst the proper worship of his name. Because he is to be feared. Israel is not just being brought out of slavery, but they're being brought into something. And that is proper communion with the Lord through the worship of his name. And I think that's what this genealogy is pointing to. It could have just stopped with Moses and Aaron, but it doesn't. It doesn't. It leads us right into the priesthood. And so in all this, we see that God has the power to continue to establish his people for his namesake. He hasn't just given us former promises to give us hope today, though he has, but those former promises and the hope for today is also meant to stir us to hope for tomorrow. Because generations matter. As the posterity of Israel is established, we are to be reminded of that first covenant with Abraham. Again, the covenant that was given as a promise to make him a nation in the midst of his enemies. That his descendants would be delivered from the hand of the enemy and that they would take great wealth in the process. And that they would be more numerous than the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. And lastly, they would be blessed to be a blessing. Okay, so we see, okay, make, his descendants would be made a nation in the midst of the enemy. Check, this has happened. Israel is a functional nation within Egypt. Okay, check, that's happened. They will be delivered from the hand of their enemy and they will take wealth. Okay, this is happening. It's a partial check. We're seeing this happen. Okay, their deliverance is at hand. But then the two other promises of this covenant they'd be more numerous than the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore not quite I think you could count Israel at this point and lastly they would be blessed to be a blessing we're not there yet we're not there yet in the story there, 
Israel's not quite blessed yet. They, they're still in captivity. And so if all these promises have been given to Abraham and their fulfillment is through his lineage, what do we make of this? In fact, it's Abraham specifically believing that promise that's credit to him as righteousness. We got to understand this. Abraham believed God for posterity, and that's what saved Abraham. That should, that should really blow our minds. The promise that Abraham believed on that was credited to him for righteousness was that he would have posterity, that his lineage would turn into a nation, that that nation would be innumerable, and that they would bless the world. And so we have to work with, what, is that happening? Is it happening in the text? And what does it look like? What will it look like? Those are all questions we have to ask. So the faith that saved Abraham was not some generalized faith in God. It wasn't. It was a specific faith and a specific promise. Abraham took the Lord at his word. He took him at his word. And we must too. And now that we're on this side of history, now that we're on this side of all these acts of redemption, what does the fulfillment of these promises look like? For that, we're going to look at Romans 4 and Galatians 3. The Apostle Paul makes things incredibly clear for us. And we're going to tie this right back to what's happening with Israel. So, don't you worry. <laughs> Romans 4, starting in, church, uh, in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is... The adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. That's a, not a very kind thing to say. Um, he was old, okay? He was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no, unbe no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Moreover, we see again in Galatians 3 that we are children of Abraham if we have a faith like Abraham's. Paul writes, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, 
preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Did you see that? Scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall the nations be blessed. What does that mean? That the gospel is somehow tied to posterity. The gospel does not undo and replace everything that was already given. We see that the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The law and the prophets have always pointed to Jesus. Every covenant made, every promise given, every genealogy written has always been a guidepost to Jesus, the eternal Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate, buried, yet risen from the grave on the third day. All the scriptures point to him. It's all about him. It's all about him. However, we, we would be remiss to miss that connection point, that the gospel was preached beforehand. I think, I really believe that the church is in grave danger today because we have missed one of the biggest promises, the biggest blessings to us as a church and the largest guidepost that we still should be pointing to and it's this, the covenant promises made to us for our own posterity. This is important to remember. Faith in Christ does not nullify the promises given to posterity, but it fulfills it. Many, many today have been duped into thinking that since we are on this side of Christ's resurrection that every former promise and covenant blessing given to the forefathers is somehow null and void. As if the specific promises of God to his people over and over and over again somehow no longer mean anything. As if they were for a former time. But I'm telling you today, generations matter to the Lord. And that's what this genealogy is all about. Generations matter they always have. In fact, the Lord gives his word to his people, starting in Exodus 34, repeat it throughout the scriptures. He gives his word in Exodus 34. He says that he will keep his covenant steadfast love for us to a thousand generations. A thousand generations. That's a long time. Did you know that the earth has not even seen a thousand generations? Consider that. I count it Luke's genealogy from Adam to Jesus. It's only 77. If you include Adam and Jesus, that's 77 generations. And there are calculators online. You can put in years, and it tells you how many generations that makes up. 2,023 years, I just went to 0 AD, is only 73 generations. That's 150 generations from the dawn of of humanity to today 150 and yet the word of God says he keeps covenant love to a thousand are we going to take him at his word 
Are we going to believe that in Christ we have a future hope, not just for a resurrection, that is incredibly clear from the scriptures, but that he is establishing our generations. He's establishing our posterity for his name's sake. Just as he promised to Abraham that he would become a nation and many nations and that his people would be a blessing to the world, we belong to that promise because we in Christ have the faith of Abraham. And so that promise is ours today. And we either have to choose to walk in it and to believe it and to say, yes, yes. I will keep the end in mind and I will believe your word to a thousand generations. Or we'll be duped into thinking that this is all about me, myself and I. And I have nothing to pass on to my children and those who came before me meant nothing either. It can't. It can't be that way. It can't be that way. So just as this genealogy was meant to give hope for Israel's future, this one in Exodus 6 was a guidepost to the promises of God. We too must look at our children and our children's children and say, the Lord has been good to me. He has established me and will continue to establish me. He will fulfill all these covenant promises to me through them. Therefore, I will fear his name. I will obey his commands, and I will walk by faith in the Son of God. As we conclude, I want, us to, I want to give us just a few charges, and then we're going to read some psalms for our closing. For some of you, you can look back in time. You can look up your family tree and you can praise God for his faithfulness to you and your family. For others, you may be a first-generation Christian, but you too can look back and see God's mercy in drawing you to himself and in him still orchestrating your family tree to the point of grace today. It wasn't all for naught. Because if you know him today, then he has blessed your lineage. We must also view our genealogies in the present. We can continue to take Christ at his word and believe that he still mingles the miraculous with the mundane and that he has a purpose for us today. Just like Moses and Aaron were simply the brothers, the kindred, of the people of Israel, he uses our lineages, our genealogies to say, he still has a purpose for me. He still has a purpose for you and you and you. He will do it. And lastly, our genealogies should point us to the future, to the power of God to be revealed. We our children and our children's children to a thousand generations have a living hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, listen as I share with you closing psalms. Psalm 102, starting in verse 25. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth 
and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Again in Psalm 103. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. And lastly, Psalm 105, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac. Which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute. To Israel as an everlasting covenant. Saying to you I will give the land of Canaan. As your portion for an inheritance. To this I say we. Our children and our children's children. All with the faith of Abraham will inherit the world to come. Grant it to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. O Father in heaven, you are the God of the nations. All things belong to you. They are from you and for you and to you. And all will give their due praise at the last. And we praise your name that though the wicked will perish and though the earth will be consumed, your steadfast love and your covenant promises are from everlasting to everlasting for those who fear your name. Teach us, Lord, to fear your name, to walk in your statutes and your commandments, and to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Teach us to love your will and your ways and to establish our generations for years to come. May we take up the responsibility of teaching our children and our children's children you and your ways and your statutes. May you bless us. May you hold us and keep us all the days of our lives. And may we trust you unto a thousand generations. Amen.